0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our daily broadcast. Today's quote is about hataka. Hattaka is one of these important uh, lay disciples. Lay meaning not ordained. So householder, disciples of the Buddha. It's about seven qualities that Hataka is said to have possessed. It's typical of the Buddha's teaching. It's This is a teaching from the Anguttara Nikaya. We've got so many uh, lists. It's hard to keep track of them all. See, the, we have to remember that these, the, the, the teachings of the Buddha were not written as a book. They weren't taught from the point of view of, of composing a, a single work that, that was meant to be read from beginning to end. But these were actually ta- actual talks that the Buddha gave at different times to different audiences and so there's, there's a lot of repetition because for the most part we all need to hear the same thing but on the other end each of us has our own individual inclinations and, and our problems are unique in their intensity, or in their, their, uh, their importance to each of us. For some people anger is, is is the uh, predominant obstacle, or some people greed is the predominant obstacle. Uh, Different people have different character types as well. So some people are intellectual, others are passionate, and so on. We have to adjust the teaching. But these seven qualities are the, uh, I think that's the seven treasures. Okay, keep track of them all. But these seven are taught elsewhere, and they should be familiar from some of the other lists that we've had. But it's a really, this is a, um, this is an important list, or a really, really good list for us to remember. It's one of those lists that we can use as an outline for how to live our lives. you won't find a lot of answers uh, in regards to how to live your life in terms in terms of a- actions or decisions. Should I do this? Should I do that? What's a proper um, livelihood? And so on. There's beyond the, the basic moral ethical presets. There's a lot of leeway and. There's very, there, there's not a great deal of instruction on uh, making decisions as far as do this, don't do that. But there's much more of an emphasis on qualities of mind. It's because if, unless you know the exact details of your actions, you can't always know the consequences. We've talked about this before, that something may look like a good deed but the consequences might just happen to set you on a bad path. You might try to do something good and because of the circumstances it just makes you upset and, and confused and and uh, causes you to decline in, in wholesomeness. On the other hand, you might be trying to do something terrible and in the act of doing it you get caught or you get uh, You feel some remorse and find that this act actually turns out to be the best thing that could have happened to you. So it's very, very complicated. What is a good deed? What is a bad deed? The only way we can truly understand good karma, bad karma, and and really make sense of this in in a uh, uh, comprehensive or systematic way is focus on qualities of mind, and these are momentary, these are now. So these are seven qualities, and this is what the Buddha would focus on, qualities of mind. If your mind is pure, you don't have to worry about your actions. Your actions are are secondary to the state of mind, because you can't be sure what the consequences are going to be, what the results are going to be of your actions. But you can what you can be uh, in charge of or on top of is your reactions, your uh, interactions with the, with the events as they unfold. So what are the qualities of mind we should have to, to be able to react appropriately? Faith, virtue, self-respect, Fear of Blame, Learning Generosity and Wisdom. It's really self-respect. It's a very strange translation. shouldn't be self-respect. Let's go to Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's our go-to guy as far as translations. Moral shame and moral dread is how, Mieke Bodhi translates. So, so let's start beginning. Virtuous sila, someone who is moral and ethical. This is the basis in Buddhism. It's not meditation; is not the basis. Morality is the basis. And. It's important, as with all things, morality is, at its essence, based in the mind, it's based on our intentions. It's not actually, at its essence, based on on our actions. Morality is the the mental volition or the um, the, uh, work that we do to keep the mind from wandering, keep the mind from being distracted. The work that we do to bring the mind back to the present moment is actually the best, most uh, essential way of understanding morality. Meditation in fact is at its essence the act of morality, the act of, of ethical behavior in its ultimate form because um, when the opportunity comes to be upset, to like or dislike, or uh, Become arrogant or conceited. It's the mind that that prevents that. It's the mindfulness. It's the, the act of meditation. So all this effort that we do—not to kill, not to steal—all of that is, is what is, is is simply the sort of the the coarse manifestation of the essential quality of, of, to some extent, controlling the mind. Um, to the extent that there is any control and and it's important because there's not a lot of control you can't stop yourself from wanting things you can't, you know, you can't um, stop yourself from thinking you can't stop experiences from coming you can't control in that sense but there is a sense that the mind can be controlled through effort through um, and sustained practice where the mind uh, is able to not only not react to experiences but not react to our reactions so when we do get angry to be able to see the anger clearly we do want something to be able to see the, the greed clearly the desire clearly and let it go So in meditation we are practicing morality. We are practicing ethics. You might think, well, what does ethics have to do with sitting still? When you're sitting still, there's no opportunity to kill or steal. You know, morality is much more much more fundamental, much more basic than that. It's called virati, jitasika, the mind that that abstains. The mind that just no. So when your mind is not not Falling for the trap of getting caught up in thoughts or emotions, reactions, that's morality. And it's morality because it leads to concentration, it leads to focus. The mind becomes focused when you do this. That's how you know it's true morality. But in a general sense, this, this coarse and, and sort of uh, mundane morality it's in the same vein, and it's, it's 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 still important. It's important not to kill and not to steal because these are sort of fence posts to help you gauge where where the mindfulness where where a mindful mind will will stop. If your mind is mindful, which is, mindfulness is like the fence precepts are like the fence posts. Sort without the fence posts, it's very hard to. Uh, to know where the fence should go it's very hard to get a sense of right and wrong but uh, it's only when you put up the mindfulness that you actually are able to be moral and ethical precepts don't do that they're important but they're only fence posts in and of themselves they don't keep the mind in this requires mindfulness Sila and then hiri ma otapa, otapi, hiri ma means has hiri, otapi means has otapa, hiri and otapa always go together and they're explained as the, well they're explained as fear and, and shame which makes them sound actually somewhat unwholesome, right, these are called, fear and shame are bad things, they're a cause for suffering but these mind states are, uh, only technically fear and shame they're actually, they're not fear and they're not shame at all these two words are are not actually appropriate but that's the words that that the Buddha used to describe them but they're the inclination or the disinclination towards unwholesome deeds which really comes through wisdom or, or, or comes from whatever but the disinclination to do evil deeds. When the mind is aware or, or uh, observes uh, an unwholesome intention as a cause for suffering, and one sees the problem with the, the, the state, and one understands the, the negative result, this is fear and shame. Fear, mean, fear is referring to the result. You think of the result and you think the result of doing that is not good. But it's not fear, it's just you know that it's bad. If you know something is bad, you, you never do it. You really understood. The reason we we give rise to unwholesomeness is we really don't understand that bad. And shame is referring to the deed itself when you look at the, the, the mind state or the the uh, direction that your mind is going in and you think that's bad I mean they're really related It's actually why is it bad because of the result but it's it's when you focus on the deed or the, the, the state of mind and you say oh that's not good that's called shame and so it's the good part of shame and the good part of fear they aren't really shame and fear but that's how they're described. It just means the disinclination towards deeds and and towards certain results. When you don't want to suffer, when you you are clear in your mind, not that you're afraid of suffering or something, but when you're clear in your mind that that's not a good thing. That's not of any use or any benefit. It's trouble. When the mind is disinclined due to the uh, troublesome nature because of the yeah. the complicated nature of the state. That's all That's yes. which one is which? Here is shame. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's orta. After that, we have Bahusutta. Bahusutta we talked about yesterday. It was in the list yesterday, I think. Ahusutta means, ahusutta means having much learning, being learned. This is a common one in these lists. So anyone who thinks that you can just practice meditation and you shouldn't ever study isn't following the Buddha's advice. It's true, at times the Buddha has said you don't need to do much study, but he's very much in praise of those who do. Because study is important not only for yourself, but for others as well. Yesterday we had talk about teaching. How how great it is for a person to actually teach others. So the the teachings won't be passed on if there are not people who have studied, who have learned much more than is perhaps necessary for themselves. So someone who memorizes all these lists May not, be able to ha- may not be able to use all of them for their own benefit, it may not need them all for their own benefit, but is then able to apply them to different people in different circumstances, looking at why the Buddha taught or when the Buddha taught. Uh, different teachings, they can then apply them for other people. So that's Pahu Chagawa means has Chaga. Chaga means... Uh, Donation. Generosity. Someone is generous. And we have you. I one? Sanda. Oh, I missed. No, I missed Sanda. Hmm, I missed the first one. The first one, of course, is Sanda. Sando. One has faith in the Buddha, one has confidence, we've talked about faith many times. Saddha. Saddha is important, it's important to have some kind of faith in what you do. Of course the best kind of faith is through wisdom, um, but it can also be through observation and through rational thought. That's a good way in the beginning to sort of get faith is to analyze things and to see but we should, once we've analyzed, we should not get stuck on this idea, this state this state, of, this, uh, this state of, of, of doubt, state of skepticism. Once you've analyzed, you should pick something to have faith in. You should have confidence in those things that you've studied, because otherwise, you'll doubt things irrationally. And this happens. We doubt things for no reason. Some people are too enamored with their doubt that they think that doubt is always good. Ah, if I doubt it, it's a sign. It's a, you know, or it's important to always doubt. No, it's not actually good to doubt. It's possible to doubt things even after you've gone through it completely and and affirm for yourself that it's perfect, it's right, it's good. You can still doubt it. You can still say, Is it really good? Because we're, we're ignorant. We don't really understand. We don't have wisdom. Once you have wisdom, it's not possible to doubt. Doubt won't arise. Because you know. Anyway, that's sadhā. Very important in the beginning. It's, uh, it's not. It's um, sort of a preliminary for the practice. If you don't have confidence, You won't put your heart into what you do. So, anyway, back to the end of our list. Number six is Chaga. Chaga, be generous. This is usually uh, taught to lay people. It's not so common for monks to get this teaching on being generous because in a mundane sense it's very much to do with giving charity to poor people, giving charity to religious people. Um, but this is an important part of our spiritual life as, as lay people, of people spiritual life as lay people, because uh, they have things, they have possessions. And without generosity, the inclination is to cling, is to accumulate, is to identify with, this is me, this is mine. I'm very caught up and trapped by our possessions, so giving them, giving away possessions, giving away resources, a very important part of our spiritual practice. It's not very important, I mean, it's not essential, but it's, uh, it, it has importance because of that, for that reason, that we're so, not monks, but as lay people, lay people who live their lives um, surrounded by money and, and possessions. It's very easy to become intoxicated by them. So, giving them away uh, helps to counter that. You'll find there's the tension. I want this. I don't want to give it away. And having to give it away is, 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 is a useful, helpful uh, practice. And number seven, what is Fanyoa is wise. It's full of. Full, filled with wisdom, full of wisdom, lay people, the wisdom is not just an exclusive monastic thing and this was perhaps somewhat, um, somewhat unique and it has been somewhat unique uh, in, in, in religion where the non-ordained individuals are supposed to be wise as well. No, it's not that unique nowadays. Nowadays, there's not a sense that priests are any better than lay people. Even in Buddhism, there's a lot less of an esteem for monks than there used to be. Uh, so a lot of lay people are going going on their own and, and studying on their own, which has mixed results. Sometimes leads to some fairly crazy opinions. Because the thing about being a monk is you've got a fairly stable life and a fairly ordinary life. There's not a lot of, there's not, a lot, there's not as much, generally speaking, going on in the mind to distort the teachings. But if you're living your life as a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, you'll have your own bent, your own uh, take on the teachings. That is often um, somewhat radical, it can be radical, because monks have lots of crazy ideas as well, it's not to say that it's only a lay thing, but, but at any rate, it, it certainly is proper for lay people to be teachers, to be leaders, to be preachers of the truth. In Buddhism there is no sense that only monks have the monopoly on, the, on wisdom, uh, certainly not on teaching, but of course even wisdom. Wisdom is not something that you need to ordain to obtain. Ordinary, everyday folk can become enlightened. Hataka was an ānaka. He was a lay person who lived his life as a rich man. Uh, I think he was rich but at any rate he was pure, he was an anagana, no no greed, no anger, only a little bit of delusion left or ignorance still wasn't fully clear in his mind there's a cute thing that happens in this sutta, which is probably why he chose this quote Um, they go and tell Hattaka, the monks hear this, the Buddha's praising this layman and uh, the monks go and tell this hadaka, and what does he say? He says, "I hope there was. I hope there were no lay people present. He doesn't want. His first thought is that the Buddha might be, be uh, or that that other people might hear the Buddha praising him, and that would affect them. That it would, it would pump him up in their eyes." It's, uh, it's cute, I think, because it's, it's just being humble, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong if people esteem you. But it's, um, it's sort of this clarity of mind in his mind, that, uh, that to be clear where he stands, in case people think that he is, in, p- in case people accuse him of being, uh, you know, ingratiating himself with the Buddha, or or accuse him of, of being pumped puffed up because of the Buddha. It's funny how we do this. You when know, we hear someone someone saying good about someone else, and we immediately try to take the other person down. It's that kind of thing, I think. And his reply is is to ward that off, so that people might not give rise to unwholesome thoughts, thinking that he is somehow pumped up, puffed up, or full of himself, thinking that he is great. I am this great lay disciple. So he says, I hope nobody heard. I hope none of my friends heard him praising me.
1: Anyway,
0: so that's the the seven. Oh, and then, right? okay, sorry, there's more. Uh, And so then they go and tell the Buddha this. And this is one monk, actually, goes and tells the Buddha, what Hataka said, and the Buddha said, mm, Hataka has an eighth quality that I didn't mention, and that's modesty. And this is an eighth wonderful quality of him. Sadhu, sadu, sadu bhikkhu, apicho. Apicho means a few, fewness of wishes. Means, Icha means desires. Appa, api, ap. I don't know how you say ap, I guess. Apa means few or little, little desire. So he's he's clear that he has no desire to be some big shot, no desire for people to think of him as some great person. Like Sariputta said, if you imagine a, a young man or woman decked up in finery, and all beautied up, and then someone were to hang a dog, a dead dog or a dead cat or a dead chicken around their neck. How do you think they'd feel about that chicken or that that dead dog and uh, the monk would say, "Oh, I'm not very good and so I, but I say well that's how i that's how I look at this body that's how I look at myself. I think of myself as this this burden that I have to carry around that's all quite disgusting, actually. You get a sense of how an enlightened being looks at the world. I mean, I suppose that's not very impressive to most people, but for us as meditators, I think it's quite impressive. And uh, uh, respect-worthy. Worthy of respect. Because it's amazing how, how free that person then is you know, to not... Not con- can be concerned about the body, thinking, "Oh, this body, may it stay beautiful, may it stay wonderful, may it stay powerful." Mm-hmm. This body, it's getting old, sick, it's going to die. That's more in line with the truth, right? And if you free yourself from that, then you don't. Then there's no. There's no potential for suffering. anyway so that's the dhamma for tonight anyone has questions i believe there are some leftover questions interim questions so i'll answer some of them i did invite robin to the hangout tonight i thought maybe she might like to get come on help help me in the hangout but sure oh she's here Mm So Again, my audio, this looks, something's wrong with the audio drivers here, I guess. We're moving this week. At the end of this week, we'll start to move to our new house. I believe Robin's coming up. On Wednesday, why is my audio all mixed up? I think it's fixed now. Nope.
1: Hmm. Is
0: there any problem? No. Yeah. Usually it clears up, but it's not clearing up. Something's wrong with this. This is the wonder of Linux. It's a great, such a great operating system, but when it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. Let me see here, playback, I don't know what to do. There. Yes. Hmm. Oh, did I know how to was there a way to do it in Elsa? No, it didn't help? All
1: right,
0: all right, Fix now? now? Hello?
1: Hello? Hi, oh, is oh. that any better? Much better. Oh, good. It usually, usually there's not have time a good,
0: good. <laughs> Okay. Okay, you want to be on the camera? I'm sorry. Now we've got to go.
1: Yeah,
0: Sometimes it's a little... I do okay. Um. okay. Are you echoing on my speakers? i get started then. So Ethan asks, I was meditating and a question popped up. If concentrating is impermanent, then why should we cling to it? You see, no matter how often I answer this, I, I answer this, it keeps coming up, which is indicative of how important the question it is. I mean, it's not exactly this question, but this concept. We're not really trying to concentrate. We're certainly not clinging to concentration. But, I mean, the the, the key here is, this is how we approach meditation. We think meditation is about forcing your mind into some trance state. It can be, meditation can be that. But meditation isn't about concentrating. Not exactly. Meditation is about seeing clearly, or this meditation, meditation that we practice. So there won't be a clinging to concentration, concentrate. And, uh, so it's not about stopping your mind from thinking, it's not about keeping your mind in a certain state, it's about learning about the states of mind that arise. Because you can't choose which uh, states to keep and which to discard until you're clear which are good and which are bad. And in fact, once you know what is good and what is bad, the mind will focus on its own. Through wisdom, through wisdom the mind will focus on what is beneficial and be disinclined towards what is harmful. As far as clinging to meditation is concerned, in the beginning there is definitely some sort of uh, forcing of yourself, forcing the mind to practice, forcing through walking and through sitting meditation but it's more just a re-forcing, you know, a refocusing of your, your already uh, rampant uh, ambition. So we're very ambitious already, want, I want to do this, and so you're just diverting it. In the beginning you're not actually cultivating something new, you're just uh, refocusing your attention instead of going for a run now maybe I'll just go for a walk and instead of going for a walk I'll just stay in my room and I'll walk in my room mm. so you're it's just about refocusing your attention and eventually it becomes just an, a peaceful way to live why not you know you've got to do something do walking do sitting and rather than doing anything Just be mindful. I mean, eventually it doesn't even become about the formal meditation, it's just living your life mindfully constant and perfect mindfulness. There's no clinging. Not in the long run for sure anyway. Robin, are you there? If you are, I can't hear you. Sometimes I can't stay meditating for more than five minutes. I feel the pressure in my lungs that looks like I'm going to faint. I don't know about why that happens. Well, the body does its own things and you do have to be careful. Sometimes you have to go see a doctor. But, um, it also depends what kind of meditation you're practicing, you know. If you're practicing samatha meditation, strange things can happen. In Vipassana, strange things can happen, but they're generally less severe, and they tend to uh, work themselves out through the practice. So first thing, have you read my booklet on how to meditate? That's the start, if you have, and that's the way you're practicing. And really just try to say feeling, feeling, if you're worried about it, say worry, worry. And uh, you should, in most cases, find that it's alleviated and it's re- it, re- it becomes reduced. In the beginning, the, the body is going to react to this new state of mind in fairly, you know, fairly... Uh, well, relatively extreme ways. I mean, because eventually your your body will calm down along with the mind. In the beginning, it'll be relatively um, extreme, but there will be some fairly um, strong reactions, strong reactions. Sometimes there'll be sickness, sometimes there'll be strong tension, that kind of thing. The body is going to react, and the mind is going to affect the body because of its states that it's going through. We are lucky to have been born as human beings. What about beings in the lower realms? Would they always be born in the lower realms due to their ignorance? Not always, I mean, it's possible for an animal to be reborn as a human being. It's just very difficult, very rare, because yeah, they don't have any opportunity to do the sorts of things that incline one to be born as a human being. It's just a lot of killing and surviving, fighting, and sexual intercourse, that's about it, eating, their lives are very short. Short, nasty, brutish, and short. What kind of answer are you looking for? Sounds like you already know the answer. It's very hard for them, but not impossible, so I don't think that should be the idea. Is the goal of training the mind in realizing the futility of its getting involved with anything at all, and its involvement is the problem? I just want to clarify my views as they are forming. We'll stop forming views. That's your first problem. You don't have to understand the practice. The understanding will come by itself. You don't have to cultivate some idea of why you're doing what you're doing. If you have doubt about what you're doing, you have to focus on the doubt. Let go of your views. Don't form any new one. That's the goal. The goal is to let go. So, but maybe being a little bit facetious there, or flippant. Um, the goal is raising the futility, you know, I mean, don't re, don't put words into the Buddha's mouth. The, the goal is to become free from suffering. We should never just reinterpret the Buddha's teaching and say, this is the goal or that's the goal. The Buddha gave a clear goal, the goal is freedom from suffering. Now, whether that comes through, it comes through letting go, it comes through up giving up of desire, the fading away of desire. When there's no more desire, there will be no suffering. How does one give up desire? Well, this is through the Eightfold Noble Paths, which, uh, you know, we, we tend to focus on mindfulness, because the Buddha did. The Buddha was clear that sattī was the big one. So the, the practice is to... Uh, to see things as they are, and to remind ourselves, and to keep ourselves focused on reality as it is. Eventually that allows you to see impermanent suffering and non-self, see that things are not not predict, unpredictable, they're unsatisfying, they're uncontrollable, and that causes you to let go of them. Is vipassanā and satipatthana meditation the same? Which of the meditations were taught by the Buddha? You know, I had a monk. Actually, he's a good friend of mine, so a little bit careful. But he once said to me, and I mean, I, I'm quite sure he said to me. You know, it's funny how memory is. So maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But I've said this several times. I said he once said to me that. The word vipassana isn't in the Dhammapada, or maybe he didn't quite say it like that. He said vipassana isn't in the Dhammapada. Maybe he just meant that the t- the practice isn't. And uh, I think I've heard that elsewhere. The Buddha didn't use the word vipassana. Someone else was saying that it's you know it's not a common. The Buddha didn't use the word vipassana often. It's not like vipassana was a big thing now we make, because they're they're criticizing our tradition this tradition, the Goenka tradition any tradition that talks about something called Vipassana meditation the Visuddhimagga basically in the Visuddhimagga there's a lot of well, maybe not even the and the commentaries in general there's a lot of talk about Vipassana and Samatha and they say, oh, in the Dipitaka it wasn't that big of a deal but that's quite disingenuous because the Tapitaka is full of Talk about vipassana. It just doesn't use that exact word all the time. It does use that word. The Buddha didn't talk about vipassana, and in some very crucial uh, uh, teachings, the teachings of the teaching about how which one comes first. So you talk about samatha and vipassana going together, about samatha coming first and then vipassana, vipassana and then samatha. Uh, and that's important. You know, that's an important look at, you know, whenever the Buddha talked about meditation, it seems like this kind of concept came up about samatha being tranquility, vipassana being insight, and these two aspects and qualities of meditation as being the salient qualities of meditation practice, so there's that. Now, The the but, but more importantly, vipassana means passana means seeing we means clearly, so quite the Buddha used the word seeing throughout the Tibetan. is one of the most common sort of uh, metaphors or allegory or however you say it that the Buddha would use analogy I guess is the word he he would talk he would use he would say seeing you see clearly. This idea of seeing clearly, you know this, um, even when the Buddha talked about, when he described the three characteristics, in permanent suffering, non self he, he talked about seeing them with wisdom, banyaya pasati. basati, so it's pasana. it's the same word, Pasana is the noun, basati is the verb, uh, and we just means with wisdom, banyaya is we. it's the same. So, to see with wisdom, to see things for yourself, to see things as they are, yatha buta jnana dasana. Dasana is the same word as pasana, it's the same word, it's just there are two forms of the word. Yatha uh, jnana dasana. Jana means knowledge, but dasana means vision. So, vipassana is throughout the Tipitaka. Vipassana is very much with the Buddha taught. It's just it's become too much of a buzzword, and that irks some people. I understand that. I do tend to nuance my. I don't use the word vipassana a lot. Maybe for that reason, because it has been somewhat, you know, it's become a buzzword. But uh, also because it's important to understand, and this is relating to your. This is now finally answering your question. We don't practice vipassana. We practice satipatthana. And someone I've said this before, and someone was confused because they went somewhere and they were practicing vipassana. And it's actually our tradition. And they said, well, they're calling it vipassana. So is it not the same thing as you do? Yes, it is. All I'm. But what I mean by it, what I'm saying is, is, that you you can't practice vipassana. You don't. That's not what the practice is. When you say I'm practicing vipassana bhavana, you mean I'm practicing bhavana to gain vipassana, to see clearly. We don't practice seeing clearly. It's not like if I, look, if I go close enough, I'll see it clearly. We practice what we call sati. So, satipatthana is the practice that leads to vipassana. It's a simple short answer to your question. Satipatthana is what we practice, vipassana is what comes from that practice. So, satipatthana means reminding yourself and keeping yourself clearly aware of things as they are, not extrapolating or or interpreting them in any way. Hey Robin, I hear you now.
1: Oh, okay. Would you like me to read some questions?
0: Go for it. I wonder if, wait just a second, let's see if you're actually coming through here. I see this is... Uh Uh-huh, it's just the wrong mic. Test. Test, yes. Oh wait, that's not it. Monitor. Okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, were you skipping some of the other ones for uh, time purposes, or?
0: There were other ones?
1: There were, yes. Uh
0: Um, I don't know, okay, if, if they're good ones.
1: Okay. Bhante, here are two related questions. When I die, in other words, this body brain dies, does mind carry over or continue as a sort of individual electrical charge or electrical potential or a sort of electrical impulse carrying information that can inform the minds of subsequent birthed individuals? And if I am in a moment-to-moment process of becoming, then is the mind that carries into the next moment functionally identical to the mind that carries on beyond physical death of the body and brain?
0: There's no carrying on. Nothing is ever reborn. Nothing is ever reborn. When something arises, it ceases. Something is finished arising, it ceases. That's it. I can't go beyond that as far as it's certainly not an electrical impulse that's totally misleading misunderstanding the mind isn't physical it has nothing to do, it's not an energy mind isn't energy although maybe a different kind of energy but not in the physics it's not part of physics mind is not a part of physics That's that's what you have to understand there's a great thing about quantum physics if you study early quantum physics look at the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics there is there it, what it does is it, it it creates a space for the mind it says okay this is all we can talk about in physics and then and this is as far as we go from here on this side we can't even talk about it. it's not the, the, the mind side you see when we can't talk about the observer we can't talk about uh, We can't talk about, in fact, ultimate reality. Physics can't talk about ultimate reality. It can only talk about, once you apply your mind to something, you can talk about the results, the physics. It becomes quite quite in line with classical physics, classical mechanics. Um, So did I answer everything there? But uh, as far as the mind that, that is reborn being the same as the mind right now, yes, the rebirth as birth and death of a being is just conventional. The reality is the mind arises. I mean, don't even take my word for it. It's just understand what reality is. Reality is moment to moment. That's what's real. This whole illusion we have a belief we have in death and rebirth it's all just conceptual where is it you can't experience it the experience of death is just experiences of seeing hearing smelling tasting what else could it be it's not even i'm not even asking you to believe this i'm just pointing out it's, it's the obvious truth when you die it's just going to be more experiences so what is there really that experience so functionally it's all the same. Not functionally, but in reality. It's all the same. Oh, I see. There's all these questions without question marks. Yeah, well, I was ignoring those ones. If you're not using the question mark, got to get with the program.
1: Why is sloth and torpor considered a hindrance, but it's not one of the ten fetters? While the other four hindrances are fetters as well.
0: This is one I just missed, right?
1: It does have a question mark.
0: It does. I just skipped it. See, because it it jerks, right? I think I missed.
1: Yeah, it moves.
0: It moves. Well, we're all, we're getting closer to having our new interface set up, so we'll have to see how that works when we finally get it. So that's a good question. Um, Sloth and torpor is an interesting one, because on the one hand it's, you could say it's just a function of, to some extent it's a function of physical, if you're working too hard or if you're just, just in general a sort of a lazy sort of person, your body will be somewhat slothful. Uh, So so sloth and torpor, probably these are not really good translations of tina and mita. Tina and mita are sort of a stiffness of mind. They're not fetters because they're more just a product of the fetter. This is my take on it. I don't want to always sound like I have all the answers, and that's dangerous as a teacher to feel like you need to have all the answers. I don't know everything. There's one example where it's a really good question, one that I haven't... I've thought about in general terms, but never specifically just... Never, never actually made that connection, that it's in the hindrance, is it not? It's a fetter, but it is a special one, and I have... that is clear. Um, but it's more a product, you see. Once you once you give up the other ones, the sloth and torpor will go away as well, because it comes often from greed, you know, you're, gre- you're lazy because you're greedy because you enjoy lying around, lazing around, or it can be through delusion, uh, simply you know, why bother, why bother, kind of thing, and, and and just sort of arrogance can be very stiffening. Also, and anger as well. I mean, the mind becomes very unwieldy as a result. I think that's probably the proper answer, right? or as close as I, as close as I get. More of a product of the of the of unwholesome mind states, rather than being actually unho- unwholesomeness itself.
1: Pante is the goal: training the mind in realizing the futility of its getting involved with this anything at all?
0: all. This one, I just I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, there's an eight-hour question by Larry that we didn't answer. He's asking us to the back.
1: That was the one with the electrical
0: charges. Was it? Yeah. Okay, well, finished.
1: So you did answer that one. I must have been playing with my headset when you answered the one with the, uh, the six-hour question. I missed that one.
0: Oh, I see. Six-hour I means the one that's at six-hour. Oh, that's clever. A... Yes. Uh, okay. And there's... Guadalupe is asking about the testimonial page. No, it's not.
1: Oh, okay. When making a decision in meditating on the choices and seeing which is seeing which calms the mind a good approach
0: yeah i don't like the whole i mean i think it comes to you naturally i think the best is when you meditate and the the decisions you've made come to you and you get a sense that that was not a good decision that's more how it will come right if you if you did something sort of not with a perfect clear conscience or with a perfect clear mind, you're not totally above the... Ne- uh, above the borders or you're not, not totally ethical about what you did. You get a sense of that when you meditate. I think that's preferable. This whole conscious consciously trying to to get answers like what is the good thing to do, what is the right decision? I think you're better off just trying to be mindful. Not worrying so much about the decisions you make. I think any decision making you like any decision making you do is Somewhat meta in terms of, you know, outside of the meditation. Mindful of that decision-making and well. But But it should be practical rather than trying to be ethical. So you make a decision and well, that's not quite fair. Being ethical, but more in a mundane sense, like, is this going to hurt me? Is this going to hurt others? Is this, is this proper or improper? Because calming the mind isn't so much in terms of what you do, but it's how you do it, right? But the what you do, you should just reflect. You know, is, this, is this to my benefit or the benefit of others, or is this in a mundane sense? Now, I mean, eventually you, you come to life choices in terms of, if it's do this, it's going to, it's going to cause more... Uh, complexity in my life and that will make it harder for me to focus my attention, harder for me to understand the truth but uh, I'm I'm not really inclined to focus on this calms my mind and and so I should do it. It sounds fairly fairly specific there because yeah, it's not bad. I just it's not quite how I would look at things.
1: Are Samadhi and vipassana main meditations? Are all the others like anapanasati, metta, satipatthani part of the samatha and vipassana?
0: Samatha, not samadhi. Samadhi, samadhi is a different word. Samadhi is a quality of mind. Samatha is, means tranquility, Vipassana means insight. So certain meditations only lead to tranquility, others lead to insight. And so in Buddhism, yes, we, any, any proper meditation we categorize in one or the other, or you know, sometimes no one or the other, because any that leads to Vipassana, it doesn't matter whether it leads to Samatha as well. If it leads to Vipassana, we call it Vipassana. But we call certain meditations samatha because no matter how much you practice them, they themselves won't lead to insight.
1: Bhante, aren't sloth and torpor lack of wirya, I mean, yeah.
0: Or is that, I mean, it, that doesn't contradict what I said about them not being technically fetters or, or defilements. They are still based on, you know, what does it mean to lack radiance? You're, ba- you're basically saying the same thing. To have low energy is to not have energy. Or, I mean, I guess stiffness is the, sort of the technical term, but you're stiff because of lack of energy. But the question is why? Why is there that imbalance? And the imbalance comes from the defilement. I would. Say.
1: What does faith mean in terms of Buddhism? How is one a faithful Buddhist? In Christianity, you have to believe in God and heaven, etc. What is faith for a Buddhist?
0: I've gone over this. I did go over this yesterday uh, earlier, and I went over it today, a little bit. But um, I mean, didn't I just answer that? I I we we're talking about sadhu. Someone should be should have faith, but based on reason. Ask him to go and listen to what I already said. Um I mean, faith is faith is based on. Um, based on examination, investigation. So in a um, a preliminary level, you you base it on your mundane investigation. So you investigate a teacher, you investigate a teaching, and you think about it and it it sort of makes sense. But then uh, true faith comes from practice. Once you put the teachings into practice, you're able to see that they benefit you. But what I wanted to say is that it's important not to just cling to doubt and say, okay, I'm always going to... If I don't doubt things, then I might fall into faith. Faith is a good thing. It's only really a good thing if the object of the faith is worth worth having faith in. But once something is worth having faith in, there are things that it is worth having faith in. But true faith it can't come from just believing blindly. True faith has to come through. And it's not actually faith then, but the word is belief or confidence uh, comes from seeing things as true, from seeing things for yourself. Then you have perfect confidence in them. Alright, it's after 10 o'clock. That's enough for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night. Thank you, Thank you
1: Bhante. Thank you, Bhante.